0: All right, good evening, everybody. Tonight we're going to be in Genesis chapters 36 and 37. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, 36 and 37. Let's pray while we're getting ready here. Lord, we thank you for tonight and the ability to gather together. Um, some in this room, and uh, for the most part, virtually. Um, thank you so much for the servants behind the scenes here, getting the cameras ready and the live feed going and preparing uh, hours beforehand for this service so that it can go like it does smoothly. We pray, Holy Spirit, we keep your hand upon all the equipment, sound, and the people that are watching, Lord. Um, we're apart, but we're knit together by you, and it's by your Spirit. As we worship you in spirit and truth, it's by your spirit that we're connected. And so, uh, Lord, we thank you for that. We pray that as we learn a little bit about Edom, but mostly about Joseph tonight, and we see the similarities uh, between his life and your life, um, we notice that a lot throughout all the folks in the Bible, and uh, also in our own lives, there are going to be similarities. And so we pray that you'd speak to our hearts tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Glad you're able to come and join us here. Uh, Hope you're having a good evening. What a beautiful sunny day it was. Tomorrow doesn't sound like it's going to be as great. Um, uh, I think the forecast calls for three inches of snow. So um, yeah, don't know what that's about. That's okay. We've had worse. Um, The sun helps, so doesn't it? It sure does help us get out and walk around and uh, breathe that fresh air and and, uh, it's a blessing. So we thank God for that. Uh, tomorrow night at 5 o'clock, if you're available around, I know that a lot of people get off work around 5 if you're working, um, but we're going to be having a baptism here. We're going to live stream it. Uh, a young lady uh, through this ministry uh, received Christ as her Lord and Savior, committed her life to the Lord, but wants to do it publicly and wants to be baptized. And so... Um, At the time, Mazinga wasn't open and still very cold, and so uh, we offered her uh, the ability to do it at the church with a tank, and we'll get it heated and and do it here virtually so that it can still be a public profession of her faith. Um, And so if you would join us, there will be witnesses here and some people here, not more than 10, promise, Um, but there will be some people here in the room to watch, myself and my wife and the guys that are doing the live stream and some of her friends and family will be here. But if you'd join us also, that'd be great. Um, this is going to be a, a wonderful day tomorrow. Now, we can only do one at a time for obviously obvious reasons. There'd be too many people waiting to come in, and then the, the church would end up being having 50 or so people. And so if you want to be baptized also, and you uh, don't want to wait until uh, we're going to have one at the end of May, Mazingo is now open, uh, so we can do that there. Um, But if you don't want to wait or you'd rather do it in a tank, (laughs) you're welcome to do that. Just contact me through messaging, uh, through Facebook or email or however you want to do it. Call um, and we'll arrange for that to be done. We can do that here now. Um, So anyway, that's some exciting news. Um, This is going to be quite a fruitful ministry, I believe, after this is all said and done and we're all back in this room together. Um, I truly believe that as this ministry continues um, I think for Easter we had, uh, I mean, we reached 6,000, but that doesn't meet, mean much in the sense that the, the clicks, I think we had 2,500 clicks uh, on this uh, service for Easter. And so that's a tremendous reach. Uh, beautiful. And, and, and of those 2,500, honestly, maybe 700 watched it, but, you know, seven hundred people—that's uh, amazing, and uh, that's 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 so exciting. So, keep this ministry in prayer. When we say share this. Uh, thing. Watch parties are fine, but they don't give us true counts. So if you share this post, that's that little arrow at the bottom left-hand corner of your Facebook screen there, hit that share button and it shares it. Say, write a post. You don't have to write anything. Just say, yes, I'm going to write a post and it shows up on your feed. And then all of the friends and family on your feed get a notification that they could watch it through your channel or through your page. And so um, that's how we get that exponential viewing is when you share this. So if you don't mind, and as long as you're watching, just hit that share um, and let everybody know you're watching uh, the service and that they can join you if they want to. So that's available. All right. Chapter 36, uh, I'm going to go over this briefly, just to hit the high points. There's a lot of genealogy here, and it's about Esau. Um, I'll read the first verse. Now, this is the genealogy of Esau, who is Edom. Now, the writer here is letting us know, Moses is letting us know, that Esau is the father of the Edomites. Um, and we'll go into that. And so it reads the genealogy of Harry, which is Esau's name, uh, who is Edom, red. So this is the story of um Harry red. So, you know, th- this will explain why every redhead is so, well, fiery at times. Just kidding. Uh, the jokes just don't get any better virtually, do they? Okay. Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan, Ada, um, and then there was uh, Ahiloboam, or no, wait, uh, I, w- I want to pronounce this one right because uh, this is a great name. Aholabama. Aholabama. So there's Ada, Aholabama, and Basemath. Those were his three wives. Um, and he's going to have kids by them. And Ada had Eliphaz, which we're going to talk about Eliphaz just a little bit. And then uh, Basemath bore Ruel. And Aholabama uh, bore Jehosh, jalom and Korah. Um, and so these were born to the to Esau. So those are the kids he has at this time. Now the next verse, verse six. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the persons of his household, his cattle, and all his animals, and all his goods which he had gained in the land of Canaan, and went to a country far away from the presence of his brother Jacob. Interesting for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. And the land where they were strangers could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau dwelt in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. And of course, we just went over that. Now, um, Jacob has come back. And remember that whole meeting with his brother last week and how interesting that was. And he settled in the land. Um, This is a fulfillment of God's promise, bringing him back to the land. The promise is going to go from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob uh so it's only right that he come back into the land that god promised abraham and so now he's there like he's supposed to be He'd been gone for 20 years and he's back now but instead of him leaving you know he's the new guy on the scene esau's the one that leaves and says you know this place is uh it's too small for all of us here so i need to go find a separate land and he does and he leaves now i don't know what that conversation looked like it was after the burial of their father um and uh But God's word came to pass, more importantly. I mean, if I were Esau and I was a carnal man and I wasn't walking with the Lord, I'd say, no, you can leave. I've been here this whole time. But that's not how it went down. Um, God saw fit to put it on Esau's heart to move away. Now, this is that fulfillment of that bowl of lentil stew a long time ago. Will you sell me your birthright? And he did. And so Jacob is now back in the land, Uh, claiming his birthright and, and, and and it's his now. Okay. So it's come to pass. It's a beautiful uh, picture, um, a beautiful fulfillment of prophecy being fulfilled. And so important that we understand that my, my, uh, my son, Bo has been asking some good questions. I like that he's eight now. And he goes, dad, how come, how do we know this isn't a fairy tale? You know that's not a breakfast conversation normally, but out of nowhere, as we're having the Bible study, he goes, Dad, how do you know that we're right and they're wrong? And how do we know that? And he starts going off, and at first, as a parent, you're like, uh, uh, and you're like, you know what? That's really good questions. You need to start asking those. At, maybe not at the age of eight and over breakfast when I'm not awake yet, but that's fine. Go ahead and ask them. And we started giving him the reasons, and we mainly focused on prophecy. And and I don't want to spend a whole Bible study on that, but. Prophecy is the reason uh, we believe what we believe. Um, Jesus, throughout his ministry, as we've been going through this, especially last week on Easter, he had told the disciples several times exactly what was going to happen to him before it happened. Um, I know the future, Jesus was telling them. I can tell you exactly what's going to happen. Now, I don't know if they're used to people prognosticating like that and saying things like regular, I just don't think the chiefs are going to win this year, or I don't think the whatever, the royals are gonna do a very maybe they thought he was talking like that you know um, armchair prophesying about the future that he has no clue about. but that's not what he was doing obviously he was telling them so that when it happened they would know that he knew it's his it's his stamp that I am a creator. I am the one who knows all things. Nobody else can do what I do. No one can prophesy what's going to happen in the future, but the one who knows the future, me. And Jesus would do that, and then it happened. And they were still confused. How could he die? And He says, the the, the prophets said that he was going to do this. The prophets told us this. God told us this through the prophets that this is all going to happen. So that when it did... We knew, first of all, that he knew that it was part of his plan and that we can trust his word, you see. And so we tried to really focus on that with Bo. Prophecy, Christianity is the only one with prophecy that's absolutely true 100% of the time. And that's how we know our scripture is true. It's prophetic. Most of the Bible is prophetic. It tells us ahead of time. And so God tells us what's going to happen. The book of Revelation is a wonderful book. Tells us about how all these things must come to pass. I I know there's a lot of worries and fears right now about earthquakes and people have funny graphics they put up and say there's an earthquake over here and a volcano over here and there's plagues and there's this as if as Christians we're supposed to be surprised by that. I don't know whether this this is it or not. This has happened several times Um I know that when the book of Revelation starts to come to pass, we won't be here. Hopefully, that's our plan anyway. We believe we'll be raptured uh, and gone by these things. But a third of the fresh water will go away. A third of the sea will go away. A third of the people. A third of the trees. Not, not this. This isn't anything, you know. Um, and so we have these sure prophecies, so that when we see these things happening, we should look up, for our redemption draws near. And so we do look. But we don't look in fear and we don't look in panic. We look in expectation. Hey, we're finally going to heaven soon. This is exciting. You know, Um, we look up for our redemption draws near. Everybody else is hiding under rocks and in caves and starting to store up food and toilet paper for some reason, but not us. We stand outside like the Midwesterners that we are during a tornado and we look up to see whether God's coming today or not. As Christians, we have to have that confidence and prophecy gives us that. So when we read something like this, uh, Isaac gives a blessing to his son and says, this is going to take place. The younger uh, is going to be ruling over the, the older, uh, and then it happens, wow, wow. Uh, this is not a surprise to the God of the universe. Uh, Mark's it's his thumbprint or his fingerprint upon scripture. And we have that here. And so we read these things and it's exciting. Esau moves out of the land that he's been growing up in and lived in this whole time. Jacob moves back and Esau leaves. That just doesn't happen, but it did. So, Now, Eliphaz, this next scripture, verse 10, the names of Esau's sons were Eliphaz, we think maybe, and so that's about as sure as we can get, that this is one of Job's friends. Like when you read the book of Job, that this Eliphaz is the Eliphaz in Job, one of his buddies. And so this dates the book for us, maybe. And it doesn't matter whether I'm right or wrong. I could be wrong. You can assume I'm wrong. It makes no difference. It's just interesting. It doesn't change our beliefs at all. The book of Job is amazing, whether it happened here and this is the guy or isn't it. It's just interesting. So we see this Eliphaz is one of uh, Esau's um, uh, sons. And then we go on and we see in verse 12 that one of the concubines, uh, uh, Esau's son, she bore uh, Amalek. And these are the Amalekites, okay? Um, The Amalekites. The Amalekites are the first ones that Israel is going to run into after they leave Egypt, and that's 400 years from tonight, okay? Uh, Give or take, uh, 440 years or so. Um, But the Amalekites are of Esau. Okay, So there's that conflict. It's always that conflict, a struggle in the womb, um, a struggle for the birthright, uh, a struggle over dad and everything that went on there and mom and, and, and the craziness that went on with that whole story. But then also 400 years later, generations later, still that struggle with this family now. Um, It's not only that, Uh, the Edomites, which is the genealogy that we're reading right now, um, the Edomites, the last Edomite that was documented on earth is King Herod, the very one that was told, let's kill all the babies in Bethlehem when Jesus was born. It's just interesting how this people group seems to have, um, well, they're easily used by Satan several times. Um, And I've said this, and I don't know, I I think I'll make it my own proverb. I'm not adding to the scriptures, but I'm going to call it J.D.'s proverb. Anybody that can be stirred by Satan will be stirred by Satan. And I'm saying there are just... People that seem to be easily moved by Satan. They can easily cause harm, destruction, and they're just kind of that way. That's who they are. Um, and so, whenever Satan wants a tool to use here on earth to bother anybody, especially Christians, there seems to be some people that are just more easily used by him than others. Um, and this is that this group of people. Now, I'm not, they weren't all that way, but they seem to show up a lot in history. Okay. And so the last one we see is King Herod. Now, Let's move way, way forward, all the way to verse 33 of chapter 36. And we see uh, some genealogy here of the kings of Edom. They're going to talk about the chiefs. We skipped over that, the sons of Seir. For tonight's Bible study, it's just not important for me to butcher all these names uh, you know, virtually for you. You can do that on your own. Um, but I do want to focus on 33 because we see this man show up uh, named uh, Jodab. That might be Job. Um, we believe that might be Job. Um, And we can see why they would be contemporaries then with Esau, Jacob and Job's around at this time. Okay, so there you go. Now, chapter 37. That's what we wanted to get into tonight. That's the real thrust of tonight's teaching. It's Joseph. It's actually the starting point for the nation of Israel. Remember last week, Jacob was going to be started to call be called Israel. Okay, we know his name was changed a long time ago, um, but God says, no, starting now as you're traveling back to the land, I want you to be governed by God. Um, I'm going to start calling you Israel. People are going to start calling you Israel. Now, he gets called Jacob several times, as we've read in this chapter already. Um, But that's because, like us, even though I'm a born-again believer, um, I'm a new creature in Christ, I'm a new creation in Christ, I can still act pretty fleshy sometimes. And so what a great example for us in this Jacob that is supposed to be governed by God, but oftentimes is still the deceitful Jacob that he is. So... That's where we are. This is the beginning, verse 1 of chapter 37. Now, Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. This is the history of Jacob, okay? Now, Joseph, being 17 years old, that is almost his last son. Uh, His last son was Benjamin, and that's Joseph's brother, okay? We've gone through all those four different wives that Jacob has, and all the different uh, kids two of them were from Rachel, the love of his life. Okay. Um, and those are uh, Joseph and that is Benjamin. Okay. So that's those two guys. So Joseph, he's 17 years old. He was feeding the flock with his brothers and the lad was with the, with the sons of Billa, the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report to them of his father. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Also, he made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. We've spoken of this dysfunctional family, this blended family uh, a lot as we've gone through this and how much of the conflict they have is no different than the conflict we have today uh, with our blended families. Um, Still not appropriate. God has always called us to have one wife or to have one husband, depending, and uh, one spouse. uh, And and when we multiply wives to ourselves, whether that's at one time, which most of us don't do, obviously, um, or in succession succession uh, one wife after the next we just invite problems into our life we we bring in conflict that's what's happened um, first of all Jacob has shown favoritism to one of his sons for different reasons a son of his old age that's fine there is some truth to that it is interesting to watch Bo and Mariah love the other four with all of our heart but as as Jenny and I are older 50 plus and we're still raising an eight-year-old and an 11 year old um, we look at them and boy, we're parenting them differently than we did the first four. I feel sorry for the first four, but they turned out okay. Probably some baggage that they'll need to unload later on. But for the most part, they turned out okay. But we do as older parents, uh, we just have a lot more experience under our belts. And we look at them a little differently because we know there's no more kids after them. And uh, so there's just something about them that you're, you're, you're just, it's just different, a little bit different. Um and so we can see that, but never to the point where we love them more or we try to express it to the other kids that they're not loved as much. All of our kids, from the day they were born, or from the day the next one was born, uh, who's your favorite kid, Dad? Who's your favorite kid, Mom? There is no favorites. We love you all. Um, we love all of you equally and the same. And we try to make sure that we balance that out. It's not easy with six. got to balance out time and resources and affection and and talks and one-on-one time. And with six, it's it's hard. But you do your best to show that. Because the last thing a loving parent wants to do is to let any of the kids think that they're secondary to any of the other kids, because they're not. They're absolutely loved. Some kids take care of themselves better than the other kids. Squeaky wheel gets the grease, so to speak. And so it may look like that or appear that way, but it's not true. Unfortunately, in chapter 37 here, it is true. I mean, he flat out admits it. This 17-year-old kid is in charge of all these older brothers. He's in charge of all the flocks. He's the one that comes back and tells dad, hey, they're not doing their job. They're not doing what they're supposed to do. Now, that's not a great thing for a kid to do, but there's competition in the family. And so when the other brothers saw it, it wasn't implied. It wasn't hidden. It wasn't subliminal. It was out in the open. They could see this coat that he had. Now, whether it was truly a coat of many colors, it, that's as good as any explanation. Some people say it's a coat of long sleeves. In other words, the, the workers had the cutoffs, you know, uh, and then the, the, the blue coll- or the white collar guys had the long sleeves and they had the clipboard. So however you want to, you know, interpret it makes no difference. Joseph had the clipboard um, and the other guys had the staff and the, the instruments of work. So they could see it and they just hated him. They hated him for it. And I don't know if they hated him. He may have carried himself that way. He may have been one of those kids that's just not very likable. I don't know. Seems like a great guy. Seems like he's got very good character. Um, and he does. I mean, he's the way he carries himself through this story is amazing. Um, it could just flat out be jealousy. And jealousy does that. Um, when you begin to hate somebody just because of someone else's favor towards them, um, I don't know why I hate them. I just hate them because they're so loved or because everybody likes them or whatever. Horrible. It has that root of bitterness in your heart, uh, which is just going gonna, gonna to ruin you and it's going to ruin these boys. And that's where this story leads. And yet God, the sovereign God, still uses it to bring about his purposes, so um, I just don't want to be used by God that way. I don't want to say, well, I'm bitter, but I'm sure God can use it in his ultimate plan. No, it's, it's just not a good way to do it. Um, anyway, they saw it and they couldn't even speak peaceably to him. Now, Joseph had a dream and he told it to his brothers and they hated him even more. So he said to them, please hear this dream, which I have dreamed. So he's going to tell them this crazy dream he had. There, there we were. There we were, binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. Indeed, your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. Isn't that great, guys? You know, this is not how you win friends and influence people. You know, Joseph probably should have toned it down. Best case scenario, though, or the best, he shouldn't have had to tone it down. The brothers should have been, that's amazing. It sounds like you're chosen of God to do an awesome work. And we're going to come alongside of you and help you and serve you in this ministry. But that only comes from a humble heart. Um, it doesn't come from a prideful heart, which is what they have. They're envious. They're jealous. They're prideful. And so they did not receive this dream well. And his brothers said to him, shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more uh, for his dreams and for his words. They didn't even like the fact that he shared it. So Joseph probably needs to keep it quiet. But boy, when you have a dream from God like this, because that's who these are from. These are dreams from God. And that's what these boys are forgetting. These brothers are forgetting that Joseph isn't making this stuff up. Now, they may not understand the things of the Lord. They may not even believe their brother is hearing from the Lord, but he is. And since this dream comes from the Lord, if they're spiritual, if they're walking with God, if they're humble and they're in tune with the Lord, too, like Joseph is, then they should be able to discern this. Really? Well, that's exciting. It looks like things are getting laid out. At least we know the next step. You're going to be the leader and we're going to come alongside and serve you. And this is going to be an amazing thing to watch. But instead, they choose to be bitter towards the calling. They choose to be bitter towards the one that God chose. And that is common. That is so common. All the other brothers wanted to be chosen, but he got chosen. And so there was envy there. And like Christ, when Jesus came to this earth and was chosen by God, and so many people were following him and listening to him, he had the words of life to everybody around him, baptizing people. Even John's disciples were jealous when people started following Jesus instead of John. It's just built into us, I guess. There becomes an entitlement to it. I'm the minister. I've always been the minister. I'm the baptizer. I'm the guy that does these things, you know. And then someone else comes along and people start flocking after them and, There can be a little bit of jealousy. Why? Well, John said it right. You guys need to stop following me and start following him. You know, Um, that's the way it was supposed to be. And so we can see some similarities here, not only John, but then the Pharisees, who were the religious rulers of the day, who were the guys that were used to from the day they were born, raised up in this Levitical priesthood to be the ones. Uh, to be gone to, you know, even if you weren't a Levite, you could have been a, a part of the Sanhedrin, some of the religious rulers. And and people would come and, and fawn over you and see your wonderful robes as only Sanhedrin can, could wear and and, and, th- and think you were great. And you could belittle them and they would receive it. You know, yeah, you're right. We're worse than you. You're better than, you know. But Jesus didn't do that. And they became jealous of Jesus. And so we can see the beginning of this uh, foreshadowing is a word we use to describe this, a foreshadowing of what would happen when Jesus is born um, thousands of years from this point. So are you going to have dominion? Well, no. I mean, I don't know. I mean, maybe, you know, verse nine. Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, look, I have dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, the moon and the 11 stars bowed down to me. That changes things. The 11 stars are the brothers, but who is the sun and the moon? That's mom and dad. So mom and dad are listening to little old Joseph telling his little his older brothers how it's going to be, you know, in the sheaves thing. Joseph, you know, Jacob didn't say anything and neither did his mom. But all of a sudden he says, the sun and the moon are going to bow down to me also. And that's when dad pricks his ears up and says, hey, boy, you know, fathers don't bow down to sons. That's not how it works. So he told it to his father and his brothers and his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept this matter in mind. Jacob says what he needs to say. He's not happy with it, but he also remembers, well, he keeps it there. I don't know what's going to happen here. He keeps having these crazy dreams, you know, maybe it's true. Now, In Revelation chapter 12, if you flip over there, um, this is, this is the verse here in Genesis chapter 37 that explains Revelation chapter 12. So quickly flip over there as we see a sign in heaven during the great tribulation period. Here's what it says, verse one. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun. With the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars, and being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Okay? Um, So, that's the same thing we just saw with Joseph's stream. And so there's a there's a way to interpret Scripture that's more scientific than it is anything. It's hermeneutics, which is the law of first use. So the first time you see something, Genesis is full of those, obviously. First time you see something, you should be able to apply it. Not always, but for the most part, every other time it's used in the Bible, that first time it's used is the definition God wants to use. Okay. Now, with that, there's expositional concepts constancy, okay? So um, if you're going to have a picture of something, that picture, if it's used again in Scripture, needs to say the same thing. You can't say this picture means this here, then have the same exact picture used someplace else and say it means something different. That breaks that law. And so you want to keep that constancy. So that helps us with chapter 12. We have in Genesis this explanation that Jacob is the son of, His wife is the moon. The 11 stars are the brothers. This is the tribe of Israel. This is the nation of Israel right here in this Genesis. Now, we move to chapter 12. It's the same picture. So what we're seeing in verses 1 through 2 of chapter 12 of Revelation is the nation of Israel. Some people try to change this picture and say that's the church. It's not. This is Israel. Okay, And that's why we believe that the church is raptured. One of the reasons that the church is raptured before the Great Tribulation period is the Great Tribulation period isn't meant for the church. We're saved. We're born again. We've been kept from all of those things. Uh, We don't have to go through those things. We're not enduring those things. It's, It's meant for the nation of Israel. It's their final 70th week in the book of Daniel, which is a whole other Bible study that we don't have time for tonight. But that's for them. It's their last chance to receive the Messiah, a seven-year period uh, for the nation of Israel and the church is removed. So that's where we, we can use this verse, this picture that we have that's defined for us, and it defines chapter 12, verses 1 through 2 of Revelation. All right, moving on. Then his brothers went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Now, Shechem is 50 miles away. What in the world are you taking? flocks 50 miles away for. It's not like a car. It's not like driving to St. Joe or driving to Kansas City or wherever you are watching from 50 miles away. You got to walk there and you're walking with a herd. Okay. So they're going clear back to a place they shouldn't be going to. And Jacob says, I want to know where your brothers are. Why are they in Shechem? Uh, So he says, come, I will send you to them. So he said to him, here I am. That's the kind of kid he was. This is his character. Joseph isn't out with the flocks. Now, maybe dad didn't let him go. Maybe he thought he was too young. Maybe he didn't trust the brothers or something. Maybe he truly is the right-hand man who's going to take over and plans on giving him the blessing. Whatever it may be, he's at home and he's not out with the brothers. And he says to him, I want to know where your brothers are. Go check on them. He trusts him. I want you to go check on them. And Joseph's like, sure, absolutely. I'll go check on them. So, Then he said to him, please go and see if if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks and bring back word to me. So he sent him out of the valley of Hebron and he went to Shechem 50 miles. Now, a certain man found him and there he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, saying, what are you seeking? What are you looking for? He says, I'm looking for my brothers. I'm seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they are feeding their flocks. And the man said, They have departed from here, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. That's another 20 miles north of where they're supposed to be. So he is a long ways away, okay? A long ways away, 70 miles away. Um, And so are his brothers, not where they're supposed to be. Now, we get the sense that as tent dwellers in the boring land, um, perhaps these guys got a hankering for some city life. Uh, and so they came to this place where it's a little hedonistic. It's, it's a worldly place. Um, but we don't know that for sure, but that's our, we suspect that. Um, Jacob doesn't want him there. Joseph says, you, you know, what are you guys doing here? And so when they saw him afar off, even from bef- even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. Then they said to one another, look, this dreamer is coming. Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit, and we shall say some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. See how his dreams are going to come to pass. How can those prophetic dreams come to pass if we kill him? We can stop all that. Ain't going to be no sheaves bowing down. Ain't going to be no stars bowing down if he's dead. You see the picture here. As Jesus is coming onto the scene, popular. They see him coming. The religious rulers see him with the throngs of people around him. They know the prophecies. They know that Satan is thinking to himself, how can all these prophecies about him stomping on my head, remember in Genesis, a few chapters back, when Eve gets that prophecy that he's going to bruise your heel, but you're going to stomp his head, is the idea. Your seed, that's Jesus, is the promise of that prophecy. Satan is forever trying to wipe out that prophecy. How can I stop my head from getting stomped? I know, maybe I'll have Cain kill Abel. I know, maybe I'll, and just you go through history. Until finally we see an Edomite, King Herod, trying to wipe out all the babies in Bethlehem. This battle to stop this prophecy from happening has been going on for thousands of years. Satan, we are in a spiritual battle. Satan is trying to stomp out this prophecy, stop the Messiah from happening, stop him from being born, stop this line somehow. I got to take these guys out. Maybe if I can get Esau stirred up, he'll kill his brother Jacob, whatever it may be. From, from the beginning, these things have been happening. And so these boys are falling into it. Remember, anybody that can be stirred by Satan will be stirred by Satan. Here they are sitting there full of envy, bitterness, jealousy. And they see this young favorite kid who's never done anything wrong, but relayed exactly what God showed him in a dream. And he should be able to do that. And they say, let's kill this guy. Let's kill him. Nothing's going to change if you kill him. You're going to still be sheep herders. Nothing's going to happen. Nothing's going to, it's just going to make you feel better. And you're, they're roasting him. I wonder how many times Joseph has been roasted at these campfires. As people sit around, all these brothers are sitting around saying, can you believe Joseph did this? Can you believe Joseph did that? Joseph hasn't done anything wrong. He's just a favorite of the father. And that's the father's fault. That's Jacob's fault for doing that and making that known. But it's not Joseph's fault. How many times has he been roasted? Every time these guys roasted Joseph, it made it, it it denigrated him. It built them up, but it also embittered them. It made more hatred. It made them darker. Okay. When we roast people, when we do that, whether it's by ourselves in our own minds, or we do that with a group of people, and we repeatedly do that over and over again, we bring them small, small, small. We make them little, so small. So every time we see them, all we can do is think of that bitterness, think of that hatred, that jealousy. It's so dangerous for us. I'd encourage you tonight, when these things get read in Scripture, and all of a sudden a name or a person comes to mind while this is happening, um, please, you know, understand the Holy Spirit's trying to speak to you, trying to share with you, you know what, you've been roasting this person your whole life, you need to stop roasting them. It needs to stop. It needs to end. It's becoming. You're becoming more bitter. You know, I um, just pay attention to that for your own sake. Get, remove that root of bitterness. Pull that out. You know, let God do it. Let Him do that tonight. Anyway, they roast him. Let's kill him now. Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands and said, "Let's not kill him." And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, but cast him into this pit, which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him. Now, I don't know how he said that. Maybe he's like, throw him in the pit. Maybe he'll starve to death. We'll really make him suffer. Now, that was not his real plan. It says right here that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. He was hoping to come back to this pit later on, you know, when no one's around, pull Joseph out and sneak him back into his dad's tent and say, Dad, that was a close one. Don't send him out here anymore. These guys are out for blood, you know, that's his plan, but not letting them know that he says, no, let's not shed his blood. Let's throw him in a pit and see what happens. So it came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic. That was the object of their envy being in charge, the tunic of many colors that was on him. Then they took him and cast him into a pit and the pit was empty and there was no water in it. And they sat down to eat a meal. I mean, how cold hearted is that? He is in the pit right over there. And they go ahead and set up their campfire and they start eating right there. And who knows what he's saying? I'm sure he's not just sitting there quietly. You know, come on, guys, let me out of here. Please don't let me die. I don't want to die. Zero pity, zero compassion for their brother. They are so far gone with their envy and jealousy that they can sit there and eat in peace, knowing that their brother is going to die right there they're going to leave him to starve to death without water. Crazy. It's amazing how far our sin will take us, turning us into people that we never thought we could become. Our bitterness, our sin, unchecked, unrepentant, uh, it'll lead us down a road of death. You think about all these prisoners, some of these guys that and gals that have gone down some of the darkest roads. It didn't start there. They didn't just wake up and say, I think I'm going to do this today. It's progressive. And it went unchecked. And along that road, I guarantee you, the Holy Spirit was saying, turn around, turn around, turn around. And they kept on going. They kept on walking, ignoring that. Please pay attention to the Holy Spirit when he tells you that. I've made the mistake, too, of going too far down a certain road or walking in ignorance or ignoring the Lord when he's trying to speak to me. And you end up coming back anyway. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. But it's a lot harder. The further down that road you go, that's a harder walk back. I just encourage you from someone who's had experience in that area, don't wait that long. Turn around. As soon as you hear the Holy Spirit check you, say, oh, thank you. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. And just turn right around. Repent. So they began to eat. Then they lifted their eyes and looked, and there was a company of Ishmaelites. Are you kidding me? These are, (laughs) this is the next group. Uh, this, is, this is clear back with Abraham, you know, um, that Isaac and Ishmael and, oh, let, you know, let, let him live in my sight. No, uh, coming from Gilead uh, with their camels, bearing spices, balm and myrrh on their way to carry them down to Egypt. So Judah said to his brothers, what profit is there if we kill our brother? and can seal his blood. Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brothers listened. The, Midianites, the Midianite traders passed by. So the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. Okay. Now, as far as our picture goes, you see some similarities there too. Um, let's, let's not let our hands be upon him, but for some silver, let's turn him over to Egypt or the world and let them do the killing for us. We don't want to do it, which is exactly what they did to Jesus. They set him up. They brought him to Pontius Pilate. He says, I find no fault in this man. And yet they said, crucify him, crucify him. And it was Rome that did it, not the Jews. We didn't do it. We didn't kill him. We don't have the right to do that. Rome did that. They killed him. No, you're just as guilty. You're just as guilty. And although it wasn't 20 shekels of silver, it was 30 pieces of silver for that to be done to Jesus. And so uh, we see that. Now, at this point, after this sale right here, we don't hear about Joseph at all for a long time, which is exactly what happens. When Christ died, when he was sold, when he was gone, when he was taken into heaven, he's silent, but he is going to return. He's going to come back. He's going to rise. And I don't mean to, you know, a spoiler alert here, but later on, these boys are going to find themselves in Egypt, and Joseph is going to reveal himself to them, and they are going to bow down, and they are going to receive him as their brother, which is the book of Revelation, chapter 6 through 19. The nation of Israel, Jesus comes back, there he is, and they realize that he is truly their Messiah, and they do bow down to the Messiah they rejected at first and sold into death, but he is going to become their Messiah. So you see that beautiful picture here unfolding. Now, I know maybe you didn't know how the story ended. I'm sorry, but that's, that's how it's going to happen here. Anyway, we don't see Joseph anymore from here on out, okay? He's gone. He's dead. And as far as everybody's concerned, he's, he's never to be seen again. Um, so Reuben was not at this event. Reuben had told them, hey, throw him in the pit. Don't kill him. And then he must have gone off to take care of the sheep. Must have been his turn or something. And now the guys are talking again. And they're saying, let's kill him anyway. That seems to be the thrust of it. Because Judah says, let's not kill him. So they're talking about it again. Another brother, Judah, steps up and says, let's sell him and make some money off of him. You know, then we can head into town and stuff you know? Um, So they do, they sell him. Now here, Reuben comes back from the flocks. Apparently then Reuben returned to the pit to go get him out, to take him back to dad. And indeed Joseph was not in the pit and he tore his clothes and he returned to his brothers and said, the lad is no more. And I, where shall I go? I'm in charge. I'm the guy I'm. Oh man, we're in big trouble, you know? So they took Joseph's tunic how are we going to explain this to dad? They took his coat of many colors, his tunic, killed a kid of the goats and dipped the tunic in the blood. And they sent the tunic of many colors and they brought it to their father and said, we have found this. Do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? Must have been the way they said it. I, I don't know. I don't know if Joseph gets or if, if Jacob gets a clue here or not. Scriptures don't indicate that. But boy. Boy. It's interesting that in order to trick his dad, Isaac, Jacob went and killed a goat, prepared it in a certain way, and deceived his dad, right? And here we see the exact same thing happening. A goat is killed to deceive dad with the blood. And the brothers are saying, this looks like his, what what do you think it is? Do you think this is Joseph's coat? And he recognized it. And said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, For I shall go down into my grave, to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. There was no way to console him. The brothers had committed a terrible sin. The brothers had found a way to cover up their sin, but it didn't work. The mourning took place, the guilt. These guys are going to live with this for years now. Years and years are going to take place before they see their brother again, and it's going to eat at them, and it's going to work on them. Guilt is a very difficult thing to handle. In fact, you can't. You can put it out of your mind. You can turn on Netflix or Amazon or whatever it is that you watch, and you can numb it for a while. You can get off after work and grab a case of beer and drown it for a while, but it comes back with a vengeance. It never goes away. That guilt never goes away. The only way guilt gets taken care of is through accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Accepting that the penalty for your your disobedience to God, the guilt for all the sins you've committed against other people and against God, has to be taken care of. There's something about confessing it. There's something about getting it off your chest. Letting the one you offended know that you're sorry. Know that you were wrong. Know that you should have never done that. That's what keeps guilt in us is when we keep that all inside. But when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now that's scripture. If we're faithful, if we confess our sins to the Lord, he is faithful and He's going to forgive us, and he'll forgive you too. Please know that if you've got guilt, if you've got something in the back of your mind that you just can't seem to shake, something that's been with you for years, like these boys are going to carry this with them for years. They're men. They're not boys. But these brothers are going to carry this for years. Seeing it on their dad's face, he's never been so downcast, and he'll not come out of it. They know it's their fault. They know what they've done is wrong. They're going to live with that. Until they see Joseph again. Until they look him in the face and they realize that they can be forgiven. That that sin can be as if it was never committed. You see. I I encourage you tonight to confess your sins to God. You don't have to confess them to any man. It's between you and the Lord. You talk to God. You talk to God. Confess your sins to him. Just one on one. How do you do it? It's as simple as talking to anybody else in this world. You just talk to him. He's normal. He is able, he is close. He is near to us. He is near to you. He says so. He says, if you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. That's all you got to do is tonight just say that. God, sorry for the things that I've done. I confess them to you. Say them out loud if you need to go off off. It's a beautiful night. Walk off into a field and tell him, tell the star, tell him right to his face, everything you've ever done. Confess it all to him. Get it off your chest. Let him know none of it's going to be a surprise to him. God will never be surprised at our sin. He's always like, yeah, no, I know it was right there when it happened. But I receive that confession and I forgive you of your sins. Because you've confessed them to me. And the load gets lifted. That backpack with all that weight, that sin, has been you've been carrying it around your whole life. You've been smothering it, drowning it, uh, distracting it. Whatever you can do to take that pain away, God will just lift it off your back tonight. You take it to Him, though. You've got to take it to Him. Nobody can do it for you. All I can tell you is that you can do it. You still have to do it. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word. It says here in chapter 37, verse 36, Now the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer, of pharaoh, and the captain of the guard. And after that, Lord, amazing things begin to happen with this family. You are setting them up to come into the promised land. It's going to be 400 years from this moment before they come out of Egypt and actually possess the land that they're living in tents now. But you're going to do it, and this is the beginning God, your plan is big. You have a perspective that we can't possibly have. We can only see the pit. We can only see 50 miles. We can only see what's in front of us. But you see time outside of time. You see the beginning and the end. You are the Alpha and the Omega. You see it all. So we trust you. We trust your perspective. We trust your plan for our life. We trust to be used by you in an amazing way. I don't know what Joseph's thinking right now. He is a servant of all servants. And yet you are using him in a way that isn't consistent with the dreams. It doesn't look like they could possibly come to pass now, and yet they're going to. You have a path and a way for all of us, God. Help us to trust you, to follow you and to not lead you, to let you lead and guide us by your spirit and to trust every turn and twist along the way and truly leave it in your hands, God. Lord, bless these people that are watching. I pray that you'd um, encourage them, show them how much they're loved, give them the just a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit. Um, Lord, help them to see Scripture, to read it, to understand it as they read on their own and spend time with you this during this season in their life. I pray that you grow us all up into maturity, that we might be solid in our faith, know what we believe, and can share it with other people, God. Thank you for this beautiful picture you've given us tonight. So much insight, so much wisdom here in your word. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.